Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. The Museum of Soho, a virtual museum which wants to get physical, really physical. Good morning. You're listening to the Museum Hour on Soho Radio. I'm Tony Shrimplin, the Last Night in Soho special. Throughout the show, as well as talking to director Edgar Wright, we'll be playing songs from the movie and some of the 1960s tunes that inspired him whilst making the film. This is The Yardbirds from 1965, written by Graham Goldman of 10cc fame. For your love. Ahead of the forthcoming release on October the 29th of the psychological horror film Last Night in Soho, Dr. Jing and Yong caught up with its director to ask him, amongst other things, what inspired him to choose Soho as his canvas. Hey there, how Hi. you doing? Hi, I'm great, thanks. How are you? Good. So exciting to talk to you, um, just because of, you know, the having seen now seen the film, I was just thinking to myself, I can't not like talk to you about all the spoilers of the film because there's so many fantastic like surprises in this movie. And it is a love letter to Soho, which I really appreciate being, um, you know, kind of having immersed in it with my own research. But I guess the first question I have is why Soho? Why why Soho for this film? Well, I, I, I guess probably for, in a similar reason to you is like, I mean, I've lived in London for 27 years, um, but I think I've spent more time in Soho than any other area in London, both through work and socialising. Obviously, it's the centre of the film and TV industry, but also just, you know, theatre and comedy and music and, and you know, nightlife. And uh, it's just something, obviously, it's a kind of a very compelling place. And, um, you know, the shadows of the past loom large, both in, in a good way and, and bad. And um, I just, I guess I'd spent just a lot of time here <laughs> and it's something that I kind of wanted to unpack for myself in a way. Um, and, and, and I guess the movie is about the difference between the perception and the reality. And um, it's, you know, it's, there's obvious great reasons to be obsessed about 60s London, but, you know, there's also the danger of romanticizing that at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I was, I was going to say, like, one of the things that's so interesting about the film is that, the, yes, the dangers of the nostalgia, right? The dangers of nostalgia and how those can actually lead to quite violent, um, violent ends or violent means, I guess. And um, so one of the things that I really appreciated about it is how it appreciates the so of the past whilst at the same time not doing what, I guess, um, what I sort of read in your excellent BFI article to go with your season, London After Dark, West End Jungle, which is kind of this mockumentary style sort of a film about the Street Offences Act and prostitution and subculture. And I wondered how much of how much of that kind of permeates the film, like kind of your own feeling towards that. Like, do you kind of feel that Soho 
is kind of it, it thrives because it's both of these things it both kind of represents subculture and it represents sort of that nightlife and that excitement and the center of all things in London or is it actually you really did want to like you know uh, communicate some sort of message to the audience at all about that yeah I mean it's a complicated one because I mean even Soho now is that it's a tricky one because you don't want it to be completely gentrified but then you're not necessarily supporting everything that happens so it's a very sort of complicated thing because I think if it went fully the route of that Times Square did in New York and become literally Disneyfied it would feel like sad in a way but then at the same time is you can't you can't even uh, 100% recommend it kind of to every tourist <laughs> in terms of because different people have different like experiences. And I guess one of the things about the film uh, is I try to sort of dramatize both in the modern day and in the, in the 60s. And with the help of Christy Wilson Cairns, who um, came onto the sort of project so to write the screenplay with me and who also had worked in Soho, but literally she had been a barmaid at the Toucan and lived above Sunset Strip on Dean Street for five years. So she brought a whole, you know, she was, you know, brought a whole other kind of like wealth of stories. But I, I think the thing is, is that like I, even as a, even as a man, I'm sort of very aware that like sort of, you know, one sort of like wrong decision late at night can turn into sort of tragedy very quickly. And and I guess that's a thing that I was always a bit haunting to me about reading about the 60s and, and actually in writing the script, doing my own research, because there's all the films that we've both watched, which are sort of like fascinating. And, and then was it trying to get to the heart of it beyond that in terms of the real facts. And, and so the first thing that I did once I said out loud about the idea of making the movie to my producers, Naira Park and Rachel Pryor, I said, let's hire a researcher to kind of research the real stories, because, as you know, I'm sure you know, you know, before recent events, like a lot of those stories would be second or third hand accounts or even worse, they'd be like malicious gossip. And so, you know, what we started doing is doing kind of like interviews with people who lived and worked in Soho at the time and people who live and work there now and, and then sort of also covering every other aspect of the script including students coming to London and how they find their first year. I mean, I, I have my own experience of that, but I wanted to hear it from some people in 2020. So that was a, 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 an amazingly revealing process and kind of quite harrowing a lot of it as well. But it was already sort of like sort of, you know, kind of, I guess like sort of looking for a grounding and a validation of, of what I thought, but with some, you know, kind of like the facts, I guess. This is the Museum Hour on Soho Radio with a Last Night in Soho special. The next track, released in 1967 and written by Tony Hatch and Jackie Trent and recorded by Petrina Clark, was a 1968 Grammy Award nomination for Best Contemporary Song, losing to Up, Up and Away by The Fifth Dimension. Petula Clark can currently be seen playing the Birdwoman in the musical Mary Poppins at the Prince Edward Theatre in Soho, but for now this is Don't Sleep in the Subway. <laughs>
the popping up of all these Soho landmarks in your film, some of them quite bittersweet. Café de Paris, which which closed during the pandemic, you know, it's the fabulous scene with Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith, the dance sequence, which I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite scenes in the film and just the dialogue as well. It's just so sparky and it reminds me of those 60s movies so much so. Um, but yeah, I wonder just filming in Soho, like choosing the toucan, I was going to ask you about that. Like what kind of drew you to choosing it? But obviously Christy lived above this, well, lived nearby or worked in this park. Well, she and, worked at the toucan oh, as wow. a for five years. Amazing. Uh, while she was an aspiring screenwriter, and then she lived above Sunset Strip on Dean Street. And when we first met, um, I'd already been working on the film for like maybe about five years by that point. And Sam Mendes actually introduced us so just in the sense that he said, have you ever met Christy Wilson Cairns? You two would get on like a house on fire. <laughs> and when we had our first drink, I think actually on Dean Street, I think we were in Soho House on Dean Street. And she happened to mention, oh, I used to live above Sunset Strip and used to work at the Toucan. And I said, ah, I have this film i want to tell you about <laughs> so then a couple of maybe like a month or so later I, I said will you come out for a night in soho with me and i can tell you the idea for this film so we sort of went around various soho haunts including the toucan and i think we ended at trisha's and uh, in trisha's i told her the entire plot of the movie just just in a way of using her as a sounding board initially but then cut to like nearly a year later as i was finishing up doing press for baby driver I knew I wanted to write it and, you know, the idea was staring me in the face of writing it with somebody and, and Christy was the person I wanted to write it with. So I called her and I said, would you like to write the Soho film with me? And she said, I'd love to. So that was, that was great because, you know, I'd had my idea of what it was for a long time that to bring in somebody new at that point who also had an enormous amount of life experience in the area too was incredible you know and, and also it's weird is that we even though we're i'm from somerset she's from glasgow but we do have an enormous amount of crossover in our own stories within our families i mean both both on her side and, and my side my mum like studied fashion at art college you know her mum also kind of like was a seamstress or maybe her grandmother was a seamstress both both of them my mum and her mum used to come to london not be able to afford to buy anything on Carnaby Street and then copy the designs. Literally like a line that Rita Tushingham says in the movie is exactly what my mum and Christie's mum used to do. So it was interesting in how much kind of like, um, how much crossover there was. You're listening to a Last Night in Soho special with Jing and Young and Edgar Wright. And now from 1968 by Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch. This is Last Night in Soho, which was described in Colin Larkin's Encyclopedia of Popular Music as a leatherboy motorbike saga portraying lost innocence in London's most notorious square mile. This is Last Night in Soho. And I love Rita Tushingham in this. She's fabulous. And obviously Dame Diana Rigg and Terence Stamp, they really do steal the show. And how, how was it working with all three of them? And obviously um, this is Diana Rigg's last film. I mean, what can you say is like uh, in the case of Diana, it's like you can be sad about her 
not being here or you can just thank your lucky stars that you got to work with her and know her in the first place i mean in a strange way beyond her being i think she's so fantastic in the movie and there's a particular scene which i won't go into but when it starts i just get excited because i feel like i'm not the movie maker anymore i feel like i'm even on the set i felt like diana rigg is talking <laughs> and i guess just got the giddy thrill of like i cannot believe that dame diana rigg is sitting here and 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 saying my dialogue you know like um so that was obviously a thrill and in a weird way one of the things that was like i maybe even prouder of that i had the opportunity to do it is that we 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 stayed in touch for a long time after we shot and actually right through in terms of finishing the movie when she was ill but prior to that even in lockdown we would like speak to each other every other week just to kind of gossip about stuff and also to talk you'll appreciate this we used to talk about what we've been watching on talking pictures tv <laughs> fantastic <laughs> reminded her of the films that oh. she saw in leeds when she was like you know a kid oh that's brilliant yeah talking pictures tv shout out fantastic channel freeview channel um always on their twitter feed um you know what new to watch and what things to watch did you use talking pictures quite a lot as a kind of uh resource for this film i think most of them i had amassed on blu-ray myself like so i i guess it's sort of through and probably not dissimilar having read your sight and sound article not a dissimilar process where before writing the film i think i'd seen the sort of like the a and b and c list and then you start kind of digging deeper into sort of lesser known titles and um Sometimes I'd kind of like the person that I'd email for advice and why he's thanked at the end of the movie is Kim Newman because I was like I've I've seen all these what are some of the really lesser known Soho films I should be checking out. So I think it's funny I saw that in your article you mentioned Murder at the Windmill which is one that Kim put me onto which is highly highly entertaining and it was like something that I probably might not have found otherwise and I mean I remember the one that I did watch on the Talking Pictures TV because I think I couldn't find it on DVD at the time was the cover girl killer with harry mm. h that's that's what it's called right yes yeah. <laughs> absolutely so, terrible the kind of goggly, goggly he's like eyes, yeah. with like goggly eyeglasses it's sort of it would be somewhat comedic if he wasn't actually a misogynist serial killer but um the cover girl killer is quite an interesting one i mean what is interesting to me as well is that there are a lot of those movies where they recreated soho on a stage and then maybe they'd have one or two shots in real soho like beat girl mm -hmm. is like that espresso bongo has an amazing like uh soho set um you know and, and in a way like i was kind of interesting that sometimes when they were like actual location shots from those movies i try and pay homage to them in last night in soho so the end shot of beat girl which is kind of like a high angle shot on old compton street taken from the window of what is now slim chickens but for years and years, I knew it was Ed's Diner. And I think yes, Ed's Diner. <laughs> going way back. But, um, you know, I, that, that's, I, you know, we were walking around doing location scouting. I said, oh, that must be the end shot of Beagle. Has to be from that window, because where else would it be? So I tried to kind of put in really, like, subtle nods to other movies like that. <laughs>
listening to the Museum Hour on Soho Radio and you just heard the stripper from the 1960 film Big Girl and set in Soho. The original music was composed of John Barry's first film commission and was the first British soundtrack to be released on vinyl LP. And now back to the interview. But I thought your recreation of Soho was fabulous. As soon as she steps into that... Even in the trailer, you can watch it in the trailer, like she steps into the 1960s, like how did he do that? Because a lot of contemporary films about kind of past Soho, they kind of do it, but they kind of don't. And I wondered like, is it just the set design or is it, did you use CGI and Two Eyes, I think makes an appearance, Two Eyes Coffee Bar and... The truth is a bit of everything. It's Mm -hmm. funny actually, just to go back to Rita, she watched it the other day and she really loved it. And obviously, you know, she's most she's in the modern scenes. So she really loved the movie. But the first question I asked her said, did we get the 60s good? And she goes, oh, yeah. She goes, very impressive. And because um, it's like she, you know, she knew Cilla Black. So it was like, for me, that was the, the sort of the giddy thrill of talking to somebody who's like, you actually, you actually knew Cilla Black. I, I've seen a photo of the two of you on the wall of Abbey Road. Um, in answer to your question, though, the, the truth of it is, is that I'd seen other recent Soho films um, the period ones that had recreated Soho elsewhere, like um, Judy does it and like legend does it where they do do period scenes, but they usually choose either a different part of London or sometimes films will shoot in a different city. Like sometimes Manchester and Liverpool gets used as a sort of a a way of doing period London. But when I set out to make the movie, I really wanted to take the ball by the horns and shoot in Soho for real. So that was ambitious enough with the modern day scenes, because as you well know, Soho is the only part of London that's really 24 seven. And it's never really like empty, like maybe like at four between four and five in the morning, maybe. Um, but uh, the period scenes were like the most ambitious. And really what it was is just like incredible work by my locations department to get the clearances to do it. And then the, production design and art department to redress what really you're redressing the ground floors because obviously a lot of buildings are like hundreds of years old and once you look above the ground floor those buildings don't really change Mm. so what we did is like basically on the ground floors is we kind of redressed all of that if you ever walked around in july 2019 you might have stumbled across our 60s set on frist street bateman street greek street because Lots of people on Instagram were taking photos of it without understanding what it was. They didn't know what the what the film was. They're just like, oh, somebody's turned like Greek Street into the 60s. <laughs> so we did a lot of that stuff for real. And then when the digital stuff comes in, the really um, like the wizards at double negative, they would sort of deal with stuff in the background. Like so where you're taking out modern stuff. So you could shoot a real crane shot of Frist Street, have period extras, period cars, change all of the kind of shop fronts including like putting things like the two eyes in and stuff like that but then high above if you want to get rid of satellites or like wires that shouldn't be there or in the distance like modern buses that's where those guys come in i mean there's a particular shot i'm really proud of where when uh when thomason walks up to the cafe de paris and also when anya taylor joy and matt smith walk out if you look in the distance you can see out of focus a 60s Piccadilly Circus, which is entirely digital. And as you might may or may not know, we didn't shoot outside the real Café de Paris. We shot on the Haymarket around the corner because actually the street, I think it's Coventry Street where the, um, is that the name of the street with a uh, Café de Paris on it? Like 
that you couldn't mm. get far back enough to get the nice wide. It's very small, right? Yeah, the entrance. We, is sort of... we decided to do it around the corner, and then and then the Cafe de Paris interior was actually a set. You know, you can shoot in the real one, and obviously, like tons of movies, like The Craze and Scandal and Absolute Beginners, have shot in the Cafe de Paris. But we needed to shoot there for like six days, and I think. When we were approaching the location, they were like, "Yeah, you can do that, but we need it back at night on Thursday, Friday, Saturday." It's like, ah, I'm not sure that's going to work well for us. So, we figured out that it would be cheaper to build it than shooting the real one. And then Marcus Rowland just created an incredible '60s Cafe de Paris set, um, which I got to bring Diana Rigg onto the set because she's not in that scene, but. She mentioned in passing during a rehearsal. She says, "Oh, I, I went to the Cafe de Paris on my 18th birthday to see Shirley Bassey's first London gig." So you're like, "Okay, wow!" And I said, "Well, do you want to see the set?" So I had this very magical experience of walking with Diana Rigg on my arm, Dame Diana Rigg, um, across an empty soundstage to come onto the Cafe de Paris set, and she saw it. She goes, "Oh, very good." So your production designer has done a marvelous job. And then there's this little pause. And I think this kind of like this pause between the good and the bad, which Terrence and Rita and Diana would all have comments like this. It sort of speaks to the entire movie. She talked about how amazing the set was, how close it was to the real thing. And then she just said unprompted, she says, I remember walking down those stairs and lots of roomy eyed men looking me up and down and feeling like a piece of meat. And I just went, I went home after like showing her the set and I was just thinking about it saying, I guess you just summed up the whole movie. It's the time of the season When love runs high In this time Give it to me easy And let me try with pleasure hand